0: grateful this morning that we serve a risen king who has conquered the grave listen to these verses from psalm 93 it says the lord reigns he is robed in majesty the lord is robed he has put on strength as his belt yes the world is established it shall never be moved your throne is established from of old you are from everlasting The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. You know, we come here this morning, we come to remind ourselves of our transcendent, our great and our mighty God because you know the way our lives go sometimes this world just presses in on us and it's just easy to lose sight of him so as we sing this next song uh, let's lift our hearts uh, up to him in praise and adoration and and, uh, just remember that we have a great and mighty God thanks Alan praise team
1: Uh, one other thing that I wanted to just put a plug in for Camp Vera, uh, some of you don't know and understand, but uh, several years ago there were several refugee families that uh, the folks that were involved in all of It Baptists were reaching out to, and Marge and her family had basically adopted some of these kids into their family, and uh, unfortunately one of the little girls drowned in Grace Lake, uh, was not able to swim. Now Marge, you correct me if, I'm, if I get it wrong, Okay. Um, but she was not able to swim and she drowned. And so everybody was distraught and uh, heartbroken and said, what can we do? And so Marge and some others, uh, the brainchild was, well, let's reach out to them with the love of Christ, teach them how to swim, and then also share the gospel with them so that they can swim and be saved. Uh, uh, So that's the heart behind it. So I just can't encourage you enough Uh, to step up to the plate and uh, help out by God's grace. Again, another home mission project. I want to give a shout out to uh, Ken Taylor, to Larry Westfall, uh, to Rod Foster, uh, to Ann and Ron Carter, to Leslie Hirons, and to um, Carrie Brockman, Uh, the nursery project, which uh, our residents. Remodeling contractor expert said would take a professional three days to do. Uh, I'm told at least uh, took four, all, not quite four days, for our non-professional uh, crew to to get done. And so, just a shout out. Yeah, that's uh, so so. I encourage you to go down to the nursery and, and see what it looks like now. You didn't see the before, maybe we'll get before-afters, but you want to take a look at what it looks like now. It's it's really spiffy. And I know that as a, a parent who had little children, it would be cool to take your child in there and, and say, Whoa, okay, this is this is good. I I'm I feel good. At least the space looks clean and nice. So I invite you to uh, pray with me, if you will, as we get ready to uh, look into God's word. Father. You are a good, good Father, and we are so grateful for your mercy and your grace, and so grateful that we serve a holy and righteous God. And I I ask, Father, and have been asking as I've been looking at this text, that you would take the truths that are here. I feel like sometimes my heart is so far removed from understanding the fullest sense in which these things are true. And so I pray that you would take each of our hearts deep into the things of God this morning, by your grace and for your glory, for the gain of your eternal kingdom, we pray it. In Christ's precious name, amen. Louis Zamperini was afloat on a dinghy for 47 days in the Pacific Ocean. After his plane was shot down in the Pacific during World War II. During that time, he survived the strafing of the Japanese who came by and saw them on the floating and strafed them, and they would jump overboard into shark-infested waters and go below the surface so that the bullets would not hit them and contact them, but they had to weigh that against the sharks that were waiting to eat them. They even had sharks that actually went, came into the dinghy uh, after food, and they had to beat them off. And for 47 days, they survived floating adrift in the Pacific Ocean, only to be rescued by the enemy, the Japanese. And for several months, uh, Luis Zamperini and others endured horrendous, unspeakable Abuse, ruthless torture at the hands of their captors. Miraculously, uh, Louis Zamperini survived, and his story is told in the book, Unbroken, written by by Laura Hillenbrand. It's a marvelous story of, of deliverance, a marvelous story of, and the title of the book is, Unbroken. And my point this morning is that Like Zamperini, but not trying to draw a 100% parallel, those who are in the church of Jesus Christ today are subject to increasing battering and bruising and beating, if you will, by our enemies who are hostile to us, hostile to the name of Christ Some of you may be familiar with the fact that Yale University has recently, Yale Law School has recently declared that certain students are uneligible for funding if those students are seeking to go out and get internships and clerkships with certain nonprofit organizations whose religious affiliations seem to be offensive to the political correctness of Yale Law School. And Ted... Cruz, Senator Ted Cruz from Texas, writes this, that according to him, these restrictions may have specific discriminatory intent both to blacklist Christian organizations and to punish Yale students whose values or religious faith lead them to work there. I think it was William Bennett who said that the last acceptable form of bigotry is hostility towards Christians. There's another law that's being in, presented in front of the Senate, H.R. 5, which is intending to rewrite or add additional wording to the Civil Rights Act of 1965 that would, in, order, in reality, would restrict religious freedoms and would impose standards on parental authority and strip parents of their own authority. So these are the kind of things that we're faced with in Christianity. And I could go on and on with all kinds of stuff that's in the news. But the point is that some of you, some of us, have also experienced kind of this hostility towards Christianity. Some of us in our workplace. We can't say certain things. We can't say the name of Jesus or we can't speak about certain faith. I know my wife and her profession there are certain limitations as to what she can say and she says well sometimes she just decides that she's going to ask somebody if she can pray with them and you know that's just the way it goes but it could be met with hostility some of you have been discriminated against some of you have been isolated because you've taken a stand for Christ some of you have been passed over for promotions perhaps because you didn't go along with illegal or immoral activity We know what it's like, and as we consider what God's perspective on this is, how is it that we, who name the name of Jesus, remain unbroken, even though we're battered and bruised by the enemy? The writer of Hebrews, in chapter 12, and the last attempt, the last motivation for entering into this faith and enduring with holiness the marathon race of faith, gives us these words in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 18 and through verse 29, where he urges those who profess faith but don't actually possess faith to come into a relationship with God. And those who are in a relationship with God to endure in holiness, in a life of holiness. And he says this in Hebrews chapter 12, I'm going to read uh, beginning with verse 18 down through verse 29, and then we'll unpack this, where the author shares two privileges that are afforded to those who are in a relationship with God. The privileges, the greatest motivation, the culminating motivation, is what does it mean to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ? That's the greatest motivation for continuing on, for entering into and continuing in our faith. And he says this in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 20. 18, for you have not come to a mountain that may be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom, and a whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word should be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. So terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, then, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heaven. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of these things which cannot, or those things which cannot be shaken, which can be shaken as of created things, in order that those which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore... Since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Two privileges afforded to those in a relationship with God provide the impetus the motivation for entering into a relationship with Christ and for those in that relationship to endure in spite of the abuses the bruises the battering and the beatings that we may take along the way the first is our participation in the new covenant and as we enter into verse 6 or 7 18 I'm sorry the author highlights he author highlights the superiority of the new covenant which he describes as Zion or Mount Zion and contrasts it with the inferiority of the Old Covenant which he describes as Sinai or refers to as Sinai. The four, if you look at verse 18, four introduces the relationship with Christ as the purpose or the reason for enduring holy living. So, for, for, for is a key word which introduces the reason that our relationship with God is motivation to continue. And it's in contrast to what we looked at last time when we looked at Jacob and Esau, and Esau who sold his birthright, and these people who infiltrate the church and bring things down, these are the people who are godless people who end in destruction, and so now he says, no, no. That's not the way you want to go. It is your relationship with Christ that's to motivate you. And so we see the the complete riches of the relationship with God are revealed in two sets of facts. First, we're going to look at what our new life in Christ is not. And then we're going to look at what our new life in Christ is. So first, our new life in Christ is not. It's not, first of all... Our relationship with God is not a physical encounter. It says in verse 18, For you have not come to a mountain, which they did come to a mountain in Exodus chapter 19 at Mount Sinai, a mountain that could be touched, although they were told they couldn't touch it. I'm not making this up. You can read Exodus 19 sometime later if you want to in verses 12 and following, but they came to a mountain that was tangible, a physical thing, and they were told, don't touch the mountain. We didn't come to a mountain. We did not come there. The contrast with earthly Sinai is, if you look at verse 22, heavenly Jerusalem. So we have not come to this physical mountain. The old covenant enacted at Sinai was just a shadow of which a relationship with God through faith in Christ in the new covenant is the the substance. The Old Testament law was not insignificant. It was just inferior To what God would present in this new covenant. And we saw that back in chapter 8. We saw it all through as we've been looking through the book of Hebrews. Secondly, our relationship with God is not a fearful encounter. It's not a physical encounter. And it's not a fearful encounter. If you look... At verse 18, at the end of it, it says, And to a blazing fire, and to darkness, and gloom, and a whirlwind, and the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard them begged that no further word would be spoken. This is intimidating. It's the language of Exodus 19. It's the language of Deuteronomy chapter 4 that the sheer majesty of God would intimidate them. So here it is, as McLeod says in his commentary, the lesson that was taught at Sinai was the sheer majesty and absolute unapproachability of God. Even the bravest of guys were shaking their boots at Sinai. That's not what we came to. No person or beast could touch the mountain and live. That's frightening stuff. The text of Exodus 19 says, all the people who were in the camp trembled. I like what John MacArthur says. At Sinai, sinful and unforgiven man stands before an infinitely holy and perfectly just God. Guilty, vile, and undeserving forgiveness. He has nothing to expect from Sinai but God's condemnation. So that's the picture. And he says, you have not come to that. I was 20 years old and friend of mine and I decided that we're going to take a trip out west and we're going to go backpacking. So we were hiking in Jim Bridger National Forest, which is southeast of the Tetons, and we had climbed up to a a beautiful mountain lake at about 10 or 11,000 feet just above the tree line. We'd set up our camp, our tent, and we had gone down to the lake to do some fishing, hoping to catch some mountain uh, trout and have something to eat, but we didn't catch any trout because within moments of us setting up our tent, a huge thunderstorm built up and came up over the mountain and and descended upon us. We climbed into our little tent, and we laid there on our backs as the thunder and the lightning ripped and roared, and the wind was whipping the tent like this, and I'm laying there going, Okay, God... I was scared spitless. I was right in the middle of a thunderstorm and I was 10,000 feet closer to one than I'd ever been before in my life. It's hard for us to capture what it must have been like for the Israelites at Mount Sinai. But read the text, darkness and gloom and thunder and lightning and they were terrified even Moses it says in verse 21 was frightened in quoting Deuteronomy chapter 9 he was scared out of his mind as well Paul shares with us the significance of this in Galatians chapter 3 verse 10 I want you to look at this verse on the screen for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse For it is written, Cursed is everyone who who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. To this dreadful encounter of permanent condemnation, every person who names the name of Jesus Christ has not come. That's not where we're at. We have not come to that. No. What our new life in Christ is, then, okay that's what it's not what is it he begins to articulate this in verses 22 through 24 and there are three ways the gospel of grace excels the law we saw how the law is inferior to the gospel of grace now has the law been eclipsed by the glories of the gospel of grace notice it says in verse 22 but key word in contrast to what comes before, you have come, which gives the certainty of his conviction that they really are children of God, despite their faltering, despite their flagging, which we've seen all through the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews 10, it's like questions about, okay, are you in or are you out? Are you just possessing? or Are you just professing faith or are you truly possessing faith? I have confidence, Paul says, or the writer of Hebrews says. I'm not saying it's Paul. I don't know. Okay. He says, you know... I I believe in you. So here's what happens at the point a person comes into faith with Jesus Christ in verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion. Now, I I like the, I think it's ESV, translates the, the next word, even the city of the living God. Okay, so it's not like you've come to Mount Zion and you've come to the city of the living God. No, you've come to Mount Zion, which is the city of the living God. It's the same thing. You've come into a relationship with God. This is the city whose builder and architect is God that the patriarchs looked to as motivation to keep pressing on in their faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, we saw this. If you've come to the city of the living God, the dwelling is the, the city, the relationship. See, every child of God, if you name the name of Jesus, if you're trusting in Christ as Savior, you are a pilgrim on earth and a citizen in heaven. We had this verse given to us in the first service, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we anxiously await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. Every believer will join, the text says, an innumerable company of angels celebrating around the throne. It says, to innumerable angels in festal gatherings. Oh, so one day we're going to join the party up there. Someday, uh, I don't know, a few days from now, depends on how the games go, but the NBA Finals are going to be won by somebody, right? The Toronto Raptors or uh, the um, Golden State Warriors. Somebody's going to win. And when they win, they'll have a ticker parade, you know, marching through the city, and everybody will join the festal gathering. Believers will join a festal gathering with the angels. And then he says to the church of the firstborn, it says in verse 23, And to the general assembly in the church are the firstborn. The firstborn are those who are prominent. The Firstborn are those who are dignified and have a high rank. First applied to the Jews, but now everybody who's in name the name of Jesus. It's been applied to us as well. Received an inheritance which is incorruptible and undefiled that fades not away. Reserved in heaven for you. Paul makes this point in Galatians. Galatians 3, that every true descendant of Abraham, spiritually, is a child of the firstborn. We're one of the firstborn children. We're standing in line for our inheritance. And the thing about these realities is that we own them. We don't fully possess them yet. If you're written in a will somewhere, then you own what's in the will, but you don't possess it yet fully. We don't fully possess all that we own. And what we own is being described here for us. And notice the text says that they are enrolled in heaven. What does that mean? That means if you're here this morning and you're trusting in Jesus Christ and his death alone as the payment for your sin, Acknowledge that you are a sinner, you're deserving of judgment, but you have turned and accepted Christ's sacrifice as a payment for your sin and committed your life to him as Lord and Master, then your name is written in heaven. You're enrolled. Uh, Doug, I didn't ask if I could say this, but Doug Elric teaches at DMac, right? So he is a professor, all right? And you get enrolled in the class, and he gets a class list of everybody who's enrolled in the class. And you can't take the class unless you're enrolled in the class. And once you're enrolled in the class, then you're in the class. But guess what? Every semester, the class role changes. And the people who were in last semester aren't in this semester. But in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, Revelation chapter 20, you'll read it, read it in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3. And I want you to look at this on, in Luke chapter 10, verse 20. I'm going to have that slide up on the screen. Our names are written permanently in the book of life. Now that book changes, but only additions, no subtractions. Nevertheless, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. They thought it was cool. They went around and they were doing some itinerant ministry and the, 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 they were casting out demons and people were being healed and they came back to Jesus. Whoa, this is cool stuff. You know, we got power. People are getting saved and uh, marvelous things are happening. And this is what Jesus says to them. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice in this, that your names are recorded in heaven. I wonder if we really believe that. I wonder if we really rejoice that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, never to be eradicated, never to be erased, never to be obliterated, but there forever. And then in verse 23, it's, he says, and to... God, the judge of all. Folks, you may be here this morning, and you may not be trusting in Christ, or you may be investigating Jesus, you may be curious, or maybe you're just here because you're supposed to be here, but get this, all of us are going to stand before God someday. To God, the judge of all. And to those who are his enemies, there is only condemnation. God, the judge of all. But to those who name the name of Jesus, there is only an evaluation of our our works. Coming to Zion is to live, as Paul says in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Remember, Mount Sinai is the curse. Through Jesus, the law is not obliterated, but it's enacted in a different he fulfills the law so that the laws demands are satisfied god's holiness and justice are satisfied through the work of christ so we have become a he became a curse for us believers will be judged only on the rewards then he says to the spirits of just men made perfect who are the just men made perfect these are old testament saints abraham and david and daniel all these people and how were they made perfect like everybody's made perfect Through the blood of Christ, they were justified, free from their guilt, through faith in Christ. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. It's the only way to be justified. And they're made perfect because we're with them. That's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 40. Because they share with us. Now, how's that work? Because the grace of God in Jesus reaches back... And is effective for them as they look forward in faith. In the same way that the grace of God in Jesus reaches forward to us who look back in faith at the cross. So that together we're made complete and perfect. That's true for every child of God. Because the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Under the old covenant, all men were shut up under the law in sin and destined to die. God's character didn't change, but he satisfied the demands of his justice and holiness through the person and the work of Jesus, who enacted a new and a better covenant, and that's what we've been talking about. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, it's a a 15, it's a a new covenant, and a better covenant in chapter 8, verse 6. Then he says in verse 24, sprinkled, this is also true of every believer, sprinkled, the, the mediator of the new covenant, that's Jesus, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Some of you remember the story. Some of you won't. In the Old Testament, Cain, was, uh, uh, Cain slew Abel. And so Abel's blood was screaming out. What was it screaming for? What was it saying? Justice, justice, justice. I need justice, justice, justice. How is the blood of Jesus speaking a better word? It's screaming redemption, redemption, redemption. He's not crying for justice. Justice has been served through the blood of Christ so that redemption is possible. He accomplished what the law could not so that our hearts could be cleansed from dead works to serve a living God. The way of grace doesn't ignore the holiness of God. The way of grace doesn't ignore the justice of God. It accepts Jesus' provision, his sacrifice on the cross as satisfying the demands of God's justice and holiness. So that when he died, he died in the place for those who would put their trust or their faith in him. It's applied to us. Under the law, of the Old Testament, we deserve a curse. Jesus became the curse for us on the tree so that if we trust in him, he becomes the curse and we live as he died. And as he rose again, we rise with him because we're united with him in faith. That's the beauty, the blessedness of the the new covenant. And finally, we see that our relationship with God is an eternal encounter. It's not just a peaceful encounter. It is an eternal encounter. I like verse 22. It says, you have come. Now, I'm not a big grammarian, but there is a point here grammatically you have come, is in the Greek text in a, in, a, in a way that says this is something that happened in the past, the results of which continue into the future, unabated. So that when we become a child of God, we never stop becoming a child of God. We never stop as God's children. We are always God's children. You have come. It's an eternal thing. The reality and the glory of being in Christ never stops. We don't fully experience all that I've just said. And, you know, I read it over and over and over and over and over again, and I'm kind of going, I don't know, this is, I don't know, Lord, I don't Okay, so I'm going to join these angels in heaven, and uh, the righteous men made perfect, and how can you make that true in my life? Help me to understand that. But the glories of heaven are to entice us to keep motivated when the world is beating us down. And that's what we saw In the life of Moses, he endured seeing him who is unseen. Pondering the treasures of heaven should motivate us to come to faith because we want a taste of what God has for us and to continue in faith. I remember my dad telling me a story when he was about 12 years old. His family took a vacation, a rare family vacation for a farm family back in the early 40s uh, and, and 50s. And so they traveled by car, and they were headed west, going out to see family out on the west coast. And they stopped, and every time when they stopped, they stayed, they lived, and slept in the car. And now my dad, you know, when he was in 8th grade, he was five foot eleven. Okay? And so you have these three larger children and my grandpa and grandma, who were probably dwarfed by all of them, and they slept in the car and they packed picnic lunches and they did all this stuff. When my dad was 65, he and mom went on a cruise to Alaska. Now if you'll allow me, the contrast between those two vacations illustrates the contrast in a very, very vague way, between the law and grace. Who would not trade sleeping in the car for a cruise? The former was rigid and rules, and the second was relaxing and rich. What God says is, look, I want you to understand your identity and who you are in Jesus. And let that keep you motivated to keep on pressing on when the world says you are a knucklehead, when the world says you are crazy, when the world says you are out and ostracized and even doing what's illegal. Our participation in the new covenant is incentive to enter relationship with Christ. It's incentive to endure in relationship finally he says our participation i think my summary of it is our participation in what's permanent motivates people to enter into and those of us who are in to endure and this is the last section here in verse in chapter 12 beginning with verse 25 and there's two realities that are true for those who participate in what's permanent that inspire us whether we're if we're not in to enter and if we're in to endure First, only believers will be preserved. Now, this is harsh stuff. You know, this is like, for those of you who may not be in church for long, this is harsh stuff. He says, see to it that none of you refuse him who is speaking. Who's speaking? Who spoke at Sinai? God did. Who's speaking now? God is, and particularly in the book of Hebrews, go back to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, He has in these last days spoken to us through His Son. And how is He speaking to us primarily in this text? Through His Son, look at verse 24. Through the blood that has been sprinkled that speaks better than the blood of Abel. This is a gospel text. He's saying, God is sharing with you how you can be rescued from the condemnation that all of us deserve. We are cursed under the law through the blood of Christ shed on our behalf if we would put our trust or our faith in that as the payment we deserve. Don't refuse it. Don't refuse the gospel. Why not? He says in the text, he says, for, there's the reason why not, for if those did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, back at Sinai, God was speaking, warned them on earth. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. What is worse, rejecting the old covenant when God spoke to you at Mount Sinai, or rejecting the new covenant when God speaks to you through His Son? Ooh, and this is what He says. For if God, for if those did not escape, those who refused to heed God's word at Sinai were destroyed immediately. (laughs) And those who rebelled later died in the wilderness and never entered into the promised land to the rest. That was the punishment. Much less, he says, shall we escape who turn away from him. We've seen this warning before. In Hebrews chapter 2, these words. How can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Hebrews chapter 10, verses 28 and following, we saw similar things. Those who reject the new covenant given by God, according to Hebrews chapter 10, trample underfoot the Son of God and regard as unclean the blood of the covenant, and they will incur a much stricter judgment than those who reject the old covenant. And he says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And I just think, I don't know that we really believe that. Are we really terrified? I was sitting there this morning and I was praying, saying, Lord, I, I just have not, I was just kind of humbled by the fact that I just don't know, I don't live my life As if there is a terrifying expectation of judgment. But here's the deal. As a believer, I don't have to. But as an unbeliever, you do. It's laying at 10,000, 11,000 feet, and the lightning bolts are crashing around you, and the wind is whipping your tent, and you feel like you could be gone any moment. Some of you have lived through tornadoes. Some of you, you know, have lived through earthquakes, my sister. In 1994, the Northridge earthquake, which was a 7.9 on the Richter scale, that's what they said. I wish I should have brought some pictures have brought pictures of it. They had sections of the highways in California that just fell on top of the sections of the highways below. People in San Francisco and my sister had friends. They had um, a stack of china on the curio, in the curio cabinet about five or six feet above the ground that landed on the floor perfectly intact. preserved a picture of those who are naming the name of Jesus preserved from judgment preserved from destruction but it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God then if you look at verse 26 and 27 in 26 and 27 emphasizes the severity of refusing and the serenity of receiving God He says, and his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. What happened at Sinai was just a picture of what would happen and what will happen at the final judgment, the cataclysmic final judgment which God is speaking, the prophet Haggai speaks of it in Haggai chapter 2, verse 6. Isaiah speaks of it in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 13. I don't want to show the slide, but uh, you can also see it in Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 to 14. This is destruction that is described when heaven and earth and all that is in the created order, that is opposed to God, contrary to God, and in conflict with God, will be destroyed. That which can be shaken will be destroyed. Not, not like the china dishes. That's those who are not shaken. That's believers. We're, we're not shaken. With the result, and this is the, the result, You look at the text. It says in verse 27, in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. So there's going to be a big shake-up in which that which can be shaken, which is everything that is opposed to God, everyone that is contrary to God, every person who opposes those who are children of God, will be gone. And those who are God's children will be kept safe. I can't remember where I read it. I think it was Oswald Chambers said, All that is not eternal is eternally obsolete. All that is not eternal is eternally obsolete. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're not trusting him, here's the admonition, don't refuse to trust Christ. Because if you do, only destruction awaits. That's not me speaking, that's God speaking, and it is a terrifying thing To fall into the hands of a living God. And if you don't believe that, that's between you and God. But you have been warned. And I would plead with you, and I would beg you to consider where you're at. Because I don't have any delight in the thought of anyone falling into the hands of God's wrath. If you're here this morning and you know Christ, I wonder, are we really... Relying daily upon and investing in that which cannot be shaken. I mean, what are, what are we doing? I ask myself this. It's like, yeah, I'm always running around, finding something to do. And most of what I'm finding to do is going to burn someday. You know, well, I, I, we got to check out our 401K. we got to uh, check out our stock portfolio. I heard some guy the other day, oh, good for you, buddy. you got a million dollars in your 401K. And I'm thinking, yeah, okay, it could be gone tomorrow. You know? We worship our children. We try to keep up with the Joneses. We spend money we don't have on things we don't need to impress people we don't know. I want power, I want influence, I want significance, I want importance. And I think I need it, I'm preaching to me. What are we doing? Investing in that which will be shaken. Now it's a metaphor, it's a picture, because it's actually, it's going to be shaken, but it's going to be burned. You know, that's the, the, the first, second Peter chapter 3, it's going to be burned by fire. Unbelievers. The call is to trust Christ or experience the terror of standing before God. Believers, the call is to invest our lives continually in that which is eternal and find tranquility in our relationship with Christ in the midst of the hardships, in the midst of the heartache, in the midst of the humiliation that comes with naming the name of Christ in a world that is increasingly opposed to us. Secondly, every believer will serve. What's the natural response of entering into this kingdom? That's verse 28 and 29. What is it? He says in verse 28, Therefore, this is the natural response, since we have received this kingdom, this unshakable kingdom, we should have a worshiping life of service. Our, Our life should worship God in our service to the King. That should be ours instead of other stuff. Out of gratitude, out of gratitude, the grace of God. Why me, why me, why me? me? I don't deserve this. I serve in gratitude to the King of Kings. And what does that look like? I don't know for sure. I just wrote down some things that maybe will help you. They've been helpful to me and they will be helpful. Listen to God. How can I live a life of worshiping service? Listen to God. What does he say? Treasure, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Okay. Yeah, I'm not I'm not saying you shouldn't put money in your 401k. Okay, don't hear me say oh, preacher said you don't have to put any money in your retirement account because that's stupid. No, I'm not saying that. Don't live for your retirement account. What I'm saying is we should live for ourselves treasures in heaven. That I listen to God. And listening to God doesn't mean mean that I sit there and listen, but I don't do anything. I do stuff. I need to share the gospel with my neighbors and friends and family members. You know, I Sometimes I'm just like, what am I doing? I'm not kind to some people. And sometimes I'm not kind to the people I love the most. God says, kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. Allow the Spirit to control my life, to be kind, compassionate, generous, humble. These are the things. Listen to God. Speak to God. Listen to God. Speak to God. That's communication, (laughs) you know. Pray for your enemies. Pray for your family. We had a great answer to prayer because not it was an answer to prayer that we prayed the way we wanted it to be prayed. Right? Okay. So God answered. Uh, some of you know, some of you don't know. My dad went into the hospital this week. Um, he was having some. Um, he had congestive heart failure. That's what they called it. He had. Uh, Trouble breathing and stuff. And so uh, they did an angiogram and they found that they were, we were praying. Lord, just pray that it would be clear there were no blockages in his arteries. So we're just like, praise God. You know, whatever he's got, we think we can be treated with medicine. But pray. It doesn't always work out the way we want it to. But when we pray, we pray. Then sing for God. I read this morning, what, Psalm 89. I will sing of your loving kindness or forever. And with my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. I don't know about you folks, but when you can, I, I cannot sing very well. If you've got a voice, let God hear it. At least let me hear it. Sing for joy in the Lord. Because if you're a child of God, guess what? All the stuff we just read is true for you. You are a part of the firstborn children of God. You're living in a part of the heavenly city. We're going to be joined with the angels in festal array. All that stuff is... So sing for joy. Serve. Bless Ken and Larry and Rod and everybody who helped out in the nursery. Bless those who are going to help out with the camp. Vera, bless, bless, bless. Serve. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. John Chrysostom, church father, was persecuted to death. And here is his words, glory to God for all things. Why? Because of our participation in a new covenant. Because our participation in that which is permanent gives us a perspective that enables us to endure persecution as we anticipate glory. And notice the last phrase, which is kind of interesting in this text, Why is it that we would continue another motivation for this living and serving life of worship? Our God is a consuming fire. woo What's that about? You see, as a believer, we're not paranoid. As a believer, we're not put off by the holiness of God. But neither do we trifle with it. Neither do we put it down and minimize that we serve a holy God. Remember, some of you remember, you've read the Chronicles of Narnia. Well, Susie, you know, is, is, is Aslan safe? No. Aslan is not safe, but he is good. Our God is not safe. And so when I live in like a knucklehead and I sit down and think about it, I go oh, God, forgive me because you're not a safe God. But I thank you that you're a good God and that you do forgive me. And so I invite you here this morning, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, wow, you're going to be pressed and you're going to be put down, you're going to be bruised but you don't have to be broken you can remain unbroken if you remember that you are participating in a new covenant, if you are understanding that you are participating in that which is permanent and if you don't know Jesus I invite you to put your faith and your trust in Christ so that you can enjoy all of these glories and escape God's condemnation and as we break bread and drink this cup we remind ourselves of the new covenant and the blessedness of participating in it for all who believe. And so if you're here this morning and you know Jesus, you're invited to partake of these elements and celebrate what it means to be a child of God, to enter into and endure in relationship with the God of the universe. We, I want to pray. Father, thank you for the joy of knowing Jesus. I pray as the writer of a poem once said, thinking of stepping on shore and finding it heaven, of taking hold of a hand and finding it God's hand, of breathing new air and finding it celestial air, of feeling invigorated and finding it immortality, of passing from storm to tempest to unbroken calm, of waking up and finding it home. God give us grace to persevere in Jesus'
0: name. You know, the the blood of of Abel cried out from the ground and it cried judgment. I was just picturing, you know, Jesus on the cross as he hung there and his blood spilled out. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Um, As we take the bread and the cup, let's just rejoice in the forgiveness and the grace and the free access that we have uh, to come into our Father's presence.